Welcome to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. Today, 30 Minutes features a panel discussion entitled Art, Resistance, and Survival from the 2018 Tucson Festival of Books held at the Social and Behavioral Sciences Tent. Playwright and performance artist Virginia Vicki Grice joins poet Vicki Vertice for a dynamic discussion on resistance and survival, both on the personal day-to-day level and in a broader sense as individuals situated within systems and cultures of oppression. Moderated by UA Assistant Professor of Mexican-American Studies, Michelle Tellez. This session was sponsored by the UA Institute for LGBT Studies. Okay, hi everyone. Thanks for coming out. Um, We're at the College of Social and Behavioral Sciences tent. We have a wonderful discussion lined up right here, sponsored by the Institute for LGBT Studies. So we're very pleased to thank them here. So without further ado, I'll turn it over. Thank you very much for coming. Hello, welcome. How are you all doing? It's been a beautiful afternoon, yes? So my name is Michelle Tellez. I'm a professor in the Department of Mexican-American Studies. And it is a huge honor for me to be on the stage with these two brilliant thinkers, writers, and human beings. So um, we're going to just have a simple conversation today uh, as a way to help us think through their palabras, their words, their thoughts, their experiences, as it relates to the title of this conversation. So today we have Vicky Grice, um, the author of Your Healing is Killing Me. And then we have also Vicky Vertiz here, um, author of Palm Frond, with its throat <laughs> cut. Nice, such, a chola, such a chola title. Like. So uh, they're both uh, award-winning authors and thinkers, and so it is really an honor to, to sit with them today. And I'd just like to open up the conversation, really thinking back to today's conversation, which is Art, Resistance, and Survival is the title of today's conversation. So really what I wanted to start out with is for them to both respond to the concept of Art, Resistance, and Survival through their experiences. Who wants to start? Art, Resistance, Survival. I became an artist in part because I was teaching high school in Austin, Texas when George W. Bush was governor. And it was when um, he announced that he was going to run for president. And I taught at Austin High School, which is a school that his daughters went to. And so what a lot of people don't know about Austin High School is that it was at the time, no longer, but at the time it was still a bust-in school which meant that you had the richest of West Austin and the poorest of East Austin at the same school together. Uh, I often call it the failures of integration. And so despite the fact that it was a bust-in school, it wasn't necessarily an integrated school. So the first floor was black, the second floor was white, and the third floor was part Mexican and part Chicano. And, um, and then you saw that in terms of resources. The first floor literally had a red carpet. It's where the counselors were. It's where the library was. It was where the GT classes were. It was where the principal's office was. And so you began to see how these things related into the material. And so as a high school teacher, I came in to teach resistance and survival. Um, never to teach art, that was never my intention. And I realized in this process of working primarily with black and brown students from East Austin that the way, they they weren't interested in what I had to teach in terms of resistance. Um, What they really wanted was to tell their own stories. And the only way that I knew how to um, create a space for people to tell their own stories was to bring in artists. And so I began bringing an artist into the high school. Um, though we had done organizing work before, it's part of how I got better connected with Raul Salinas, who was a poet and formerly incarcerated, had a bookstore in Austin, Texas, an incredible poet. 
and Raul invited me to go into the juvenile detention centers with him. And so that's really how I became an artist was because I was bringing art to my students, um, bringing artists into the classroom. And I started to realize that that was actually the place in which they learned resistance and survival was through the telling of their own stories. It's really beautiful. Thank you, Michelle, for being here, for moderating this. Michelle's amazing. She's in her own right, uh, just uh, as a writer as well. Yes. So I didn't become a writer until I was much older. And it was through writing down stories. Hi, TC that I just shared with friends who also happen to be writers, but I didn't know I was one. So I mentioned this earlier that we, we write in community. We don't write alone. And the stories that we tell and stand up for or the ones that I share is the way that I resist. So we had a panel at AWP in Los Angeles a couple of years ago, the uh, big writing conference that's happening right now in Tampa. Whatever, we don't need them. Uh, just kidding. But um, that was about Southeast LA writing. So Southeast LA is a post-industrial, like the Rust Belt of Los Angeles, right? There are a lot of panels at conferences that, where people go and talk about the idea of um, resistance and, and so on. And what we were doing is we were just telling our stories, right? And acting these ideas about what it means to survive or to resist, right? It's like, well, I'm not dead, I'm here, so are my parents, and we have asthma, but we're still here, and we're not gonna die. We're gonna keep living, and we're gonna have children and teach them to be smart and resourceful and continue and to be, and to dance and to cook and go to work. Um, so, so yeah, so I feel like that's, I write nonfiction as well, and I feel like it's laced into to that, into all of those different stories. Thank you both. So tell us about your book. Your healing is, I mean, the title, Your Healing is Killing Me. I want to think about the title with you, and I want you to think about and tell us a little bit about the content and how it relates back to this conversation that we're having today. I, I have to remind myself of the, of the conversation again. Art, resistance, survival. Yes. So I feel that uh, what I discovered, and I actually discovered it through the writing of this book. You know, I have mentors who are much more Buddhist than I do that tell me to stop fighting, you know, just just stop fighting, just stop fighting. And what I what I realize in the writing of this book that that is actually the way that I learn. I learn through fighting, and that has always been true for me since I was a kid. Uh, it, it was it was through resistance that I learned, uh, through f fighting through an idea or, or or whatever else. And so I mentioned this this morning that the book really came from a, a point of conflict. Uh, in, in which I was being challenged around the, the types of things that I was writing. So there was a challenge, I think, really from, uh, if I can frame it in the right way, really from kind of a younger generation saying that some of my writing needed trigger warnings. And so I think that that's what got me thinking about what healing is at this moment and what healing means. And um, that, in fact, that way of sort of being in the world is actually killing me. Um, and so I started to think a lot about my work as an artist, um, what the process of um, politics are and what the process of art making is. And I think that that's really what this book is about. Just thinking about that, as I was reading Vicky's Grice's book, I had to stop reading on page 39. And... Um, because I was feeling like the stories that you share, and this kind of reflecting back on your comment here, um, can invoke places, places and memories that are tucked away in the crevices of our bodies. Uh, and if you're not prepared when they resurface, uh, well, you're not prepared. 
right? And I texted Vicky because I was at page 39 and I was trying to get food down here in the corner because it was in between classes. And, and I said I had to stop reading, right? Um, and I needed a timeout is what I said. And so then when I came back to it, uh, I was more prepared. And so I want us to think about that a little bit because when you say, you know, trigger warns, I mean, it gets, you know, there's, there's a lot of conversations around that. And I'm not saying that I needed it, but I did need a time out before I was going to go back into the text and, and finish it. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I, and I think that that's absolutely true. I needed some timeouts when I was writing it, you know, and I need some timeouts when I performed it. Unfortunately, when you're performing it, you can't take them. But I do believe that there is a way, I talk about this a lot with the women that I work with in prison, that there is a way that our bodies store memory. And, and that never goes away. Mm-mm. That never goes away. I have memories inside my body that I can't even begin to articulate where they come from, but I feel it, I know it, I understand it. And so when I teach writing workshops, one of the things that I um, teach in terms of agreements, we always start with a set of agreements, sort of the way that I was taught, like what do we agree to as we work together? And one of the agreements is being responsible for your own actions and your own emotions. And so, and I think that to me, that means that we might have to take the time out. It means that we might have to, you know, whatever those things are, I can't predict what that is for you. And I can't also predict what it is that's going to trigger you. But I know that as a writer, and I said this earlier today too, I feel like if anybody was here earlier, I feel like you're getting a repeat. But I, as a writer, I feel like I live in the trigger. Uh, that that's the work. The work is going to the places that are difficult, that are hard, uh, that we don't understand, that we don't have the answers to. And, and, and writing through that. I feel like that's the work. Thank you. So when we come back to, to your book and tell us about your work and your book and how maybe it relates back to the conversation, the specific text. So Palm Frond with its throat cut, the, the title is from a, a photograph from Dani Hauregi and the catalog of phantom sightings art after the Chicano movement. And Celia Herrera Rodriguez, who is a visual artist and a performance artist, when she and I heard the name of that title, we were at CCA together in, in Oakland, and she was like, oh, it's over? The Chicano movement's over? Oh, nobody told me. Um, um, so we laughed at that, because it's those movements are never over. The, the violences that cause them have not changed, or but we have, and we've persisted, right? So... I have a social justice background, I also have a policy background, and I'm working class and, and queer, and so I started writing this book at UC Riverside at their MFA program, and um, basically no matter where I am, but my heart is still home, and so you, some of you may relate to that, and home for me is Los Angeles, and a very particular uh, working class Los Angeles where my family still lives. I feel like Someone earlier in the day said that a lot of these poems have in a, a letter feel, an epistolary feel, that I'm writing to someone. And that makes sense to me. Um, it's not conscious, but that, you know, sometimes writing does come as a response, you know. Some of us who do have the luxury to take time off and go to a residency and write about some pretty flowers, that's great, but not all of us have that, and some of us are continually responding to the beauty and violence around us that make up our lives. And so this book is about loving all different kinds of lovers, um, leaving both my father's and my own, um, what I learned from his leavings and his returns, and about gentrification and the L.A. River and how it has friends in some part of the river but not in others. And So, again, it's like trying to embody like what that resistance looks like, and it's in living 
the living part. Oh, it's beautiful. I mean, I think when I was reading your text, the poetry for me sort of invited readers to surreptitiously engage with issues of like environmental justice, domestic violence, loss, um, and intergenerational trauma too, I think. And this is all through this really incisive lens of Chicanismo, right? Um, and then you, I think, embed like a lot of like cultural- a queer one. <laughs> yes. 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 Um, cultural cues and wisdom, and and you write. I don't know if I'm gonna pronounce this right. Yek Siwat. Uh huh. In one of your your yes. poems, and uh -huh. I was thinking about, and it's in it. I don't know if this is what it's translate. If that part is translated to to, to tu eres fuerte, is the yek part the tu, tu eres fuerte, like you are strong. And, and so anyway, so I was thinking about the, 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 the use of Nawa in, in, some of your, in some of your poems, and I was thinking about in invoking that, that in that past, I'm thinking about how you're using it to respond to the present. So somebody wrote a, I'm forgetting her name now, unfortunately, wrote a really beautiful review of the book for the Los Angeles Review of Books. And in it, she quotes the notes part where I refer to that poem and I say, that I am aware that my Nahuatl is broken <laughs> and that the broken parts are what matters, right? I know that and I accept it and there's more to it than you just pointing out that it's not right. <laughs> there's so much more to that and that's all you see. I'm so sorry for you that, that your life is so limited. You can only see what is wrong. So yeah, I mean, I kind of feel like that's what I stand for like over and over again it's like there's so much more than what is wrong and so my mom um, so so many of our um, Mexican heritages are mixed up but there are very strong indigenous nations that have not interacted or mixed and are, are present and alive and so but my mom um, was part of the more you know mixed side and got to learn Nahuatl because her family had a, a small general store and so her Nahuatl was interactive and transactional right so it was but it was also social obviously my family is super super social and uh, until I met them in like 94 I was like oh this is why I like to dance because these people are crazy and they're also crazy so it's like oh oh well so I've picked up some Nahuatl from her and then, of course, have pieced it together with what I want to say. And that story, in particular, that poem, is about a friend who had been uh, sexually assaulted in high school. And I had a very fraught relationship with her because she had wanted to beat me up, not just like a year before, right? So I was like, there's so many things on top of other things and I'm just trying to survive. And so was she and probably so was that stupid ass boy, right? But it's like, oh, we're just inflicting these things on each other over and over again. So, so siwat means woman or female, right? And then I think yak means strong, but I could be wrong because my nawat is broken and that's okay. <laughs> Thank you. You are listening to remarks made at the 2018 Tucson Festival of Books from a panel entitled Art, Resistance, and Survival on 30 Minutes, 91.3 KXCI Tucson. So I think also in both texts, you both in some ways invoke education, right? And so for, for Vicky Grice, um, it's about really recognizing that the institution doesn't hold the answers to our freedom and our liberation, right? And for Vertiz, uh, one of the most beautiful lines that you wrote was um, in response to, it's like the poem called How Can You Live? And it's in response to Iguala, or it's a poem dedicated to Iguala and to Ferguson. And you ask, what injuries does education breathe, right? 
and then Vicky in that same right guys talks about um, the project of the university has always been in the interest of the state and then you ask well so you know what is what is safe no space is safe until we develop the tools to defend ourselves from what puts us at harm so anyway so I'm, and here, here we are you know at the Tucson Festival of Books we're sitting on a, on a university campus we're having these difficult conversations and I just want to have you both respond to how we see um, the space of education as, as a, a one of transformation or liberation. I write about my father in this book, and it's the first time that I've written about my father. Um, I think that part of the reason why it's the first time I've written about him is because I didn't realize how much, how much that would invoke. And so I think that if you talk about moments that for me that were very difficult, writing about my father was very difficult. Um, as a kid, though, it was, it was my father that taught me how to dream. And when I say that, it was a very deliberate teaching. Um, so he taught me creativity. He taught me how to dream. He, he taught me books. I learned to read. Before I went to uh, elementary school, I knew how to read and write. Uh, and that was something that was really important to my father, that I know how to read and write before I go to elementary school. And it was a good thing that he had taught me how to read and write because they tried to fail me in kindergarten. And um, one of his comments was, if I sent my daughter to you reading and writing, then I'm not quite sure what you did in the process that now you want to fail her. Um, but it had to do with all sorts of other things. I grew up in Texas. There was a lot of racism. There was a lot of other things that were going on. And so I think that for me, in terms of learning, is I never attached learning to an institution. My father, who doesn't have a high school education, read the newspaper every single day. Uh, we had conversations at the kitchen table. It was one of the few things that was um, regular. It was, you know, that was a ritual that we, that we sat down at the kitchen table, that we ate food together, that we talked about what was happening in the world. Uh, and that was something that was very important to my father. The first time I complained about my mother picking me up late, because my mom is notoriously late to everything, and said, you know, I was just sitting there with nothing to do. My father looked at me and said, why didn't you have a book? Like, you should have had a book, you know, you should have been reading. And so I do think that for me, and then as I grew up in later years, study became something that was incredibly important. And again, study wasn't necessarily attached to the university. Um, so that when I was an undergrad, we had study groups. If we were doing organizing work, we were also reading together. And we weren't just reading about the campaign that we were working on or the very specific movement that we were in. We were also reading about how it related to other things. And so for me, reading, books, education has always been a liberatory practice, which is different than, I think, an institution and what an institution asks us to do in our relationship to that institution. So the, the book project I'm working on right now is about who gets to be smart and why. And I studied with Fred Moten, who gave this amazing lecture or talk uh, with Angela Davis at UC Riverside when I was there. And their talk was supposed to be in this tiny room. And this huge amount of students, of course, showed up. And they're like, this Angela Davis and Fred Moten. Like, why is this not in a huge auditorium? And the younger people started chanting and being like bring them out i was like this is the best this is why i'm in school like this is what school is for right so what fred would say is that the university is only good for looting and taking the resources there to repurpose to other ways right so the opening of of my book starts with something he said at that talk which is uh, that he likens going to college with going upstate to jail right he's like why why is it that you have to 
go upstate or downstate just to think about some things. But knowledge is not, should not be sequestered at the university. And it's, it's just not, right? Our home knowledges are so valuable, right? Like what we learned at home to do and not to do, right? Those things come with us. And I know so many rich people with no common sense, right? <laughs> I went to a very rich liberal arts college where people were the, the most disgusting chanclas, but they were like supposed to be like the elite of the university. I was like, you are, gr- what is this? No te vestiste, like what? Arreglate, like figure it out, um, which I understand has some like colonial undertones, but that's also aesthetics. There's also like working class aesthetics that I grew up with about how you show up to something and how you want to be experienced. So that's so that book is all about valuing that my parents' fourth grade educations, the way that they have broken Nahuatl, and then also the way that it turned me into a, a judgmental asshole as an A student, feeling like I knew things that I was special when you're. You're not. You just like to behave the way the teacher wants you to. That's, you know, that's one way of being, but it's not the only one. But we reward it again and again and again. I think these are really great, um, like, critiques of the institution. And so... Oh, I love school. Then, so, but, Be clear. So, so then... Be clear. So I have... Do you want me to say more about that? Well, what I want to say... What I, I want us to think about how... Stickers, <laughs> certificates, honorarium... I went to schools with a lot of money because I was like... Gold stars. Do you still like gold Redistribute stars? the resources to me and well, my so family. How do you do this work outside of the institution? And I'm in, like, how does this writing land, you know, in the places that it's most needed so that people can heal and survive and think through this art form as their liberation? But people are doing that despite my poems. Yeah. It has, like, nothing to do with them. Like... You know, esta Silvia Rivera didn't have my poems. She, you know, had her own amazing movement and has helped me, right? So people without resources are the ones who are doing the dirty work for the rest of us who get to sit down and write poems about it, which is not to say my life isn't harder, that I'm not traumatized. We all are. This is a very difficult world, and it's also very beautiful, and I owe everything to all those people who have worked that hard and sacrificed their lives for me to be here. And... I went to school and so mentoring people, right, who may not be, who don't present the way I do in spaces of, of academia, right? Like I didn't talk to anybody because of how I look and how I talk, which I also owe to my parents who had to be really social to figure out how to get what they needed, right? So you take it up to another level. But yeah, but folks are like have been surviving without this. So it's like, how can I redistribute resources so that those movements are continually supported and that just regular ass people can have access to poetry and do whatever they want to survive and how can I support that? So it's more kind of that way for me. Vicky, what about you? What kind of work do you do outside of the institution and, or, and to respond to that? Well, I'm not in an institution, so and I think that a lot of the work that I do is taking the money from the institution. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's part, it is part of how I have survived as an artist has been through through exactly that. And, and that may change, but I very deliberately set up my life so that I had as limited interaction with institutions as possible. Uh, and that was a very deliberate thing. It's made a lot of things a lot harder for me, and it's made a lot of things a lot easier for me. And so one of the things that's been easier is that I don't have a mandate to complete something a certain way, by a certain time, for, the, for my job. I, I, I don't have those types of pressures in my life. I have other types of pressures, but not those. I think with this book, one of the things that I've started to do is, um, and I agree, people, are doing, people have been doing the work long before we were here, long before we were after. Our, our poem is not a movement. <laughs> 
our poem is a poem. Uh, our story is not a movement. Our story is a story, which doesn't mean it doesn't have value or it's not important or any of those other things. Um, but I think that there's this way in which we're trying to attach art and meaning, you know, as if aesthetics doesn't also have value. But so one of the things I've been doing with this book is I initially started to tour it. And so I was going and doing readings from it and that type of thing. And to be honest, I get bored fairly quickly. And so after a little while I was starting to get bored, I just didn't want to do that anymore. And so one of the things that I've started to do now, and it was actually inspired from the Undercommons with Fred Moten, uh, we were reading the Undercommons as a group publicly in a public space. Um, we asked the guy at the restaurant to tear off the butcher paper that they used for the tables and we sat it down on our table and we're taking notes and talking about it. And um, somebody in our group said, you know, I really want to learn more about manifestos. And I said, if that's what you want to learn, then that's the class you should teach. And if you teach that class, I'll go to it. And so they started teaching these manifesto writing workshops. And I've started doing manifesto writing workshops called This is a Manifesto. And um, I've done them in... Um, Working class neighborhoods. I did one in the prison recently. Um, and so I've, I've been doing that a lot more and I'm kind of interested in that. From that group that we were working on, one of the things that we're going to do is to take the writings that we did, which is over four months of workshops, and we're actually going to do an exhibit with them because we have a friend in the Bronx who has lived in the Bronx for, for generations. And uh, one of the things that she's done within her space, I, I keep on telling her that she's liberated the domestic space. So she's basically taken out all of her furniture from her house and just has furniture in her bedroom. And she uses the um, living room as an artist-run space that she has exhibits, parties, gatherings, um, salons um, in that uh, venue. It's called AAA 3A because it's Alexander Avenue Apartment 3A. So AAA 3A, you can look that up too. And so we're going to do an exhibit called This is a Manifesto and part of what we're also doing is exhibiting books that have sort of changed our lives that have been important to us and opening it up as a free bookstore so people are going to be able to take books from that from that space. So that's an example. And I realized I didn't give you examples of what it is that I'm doing. So I have a day job which is uh, working at a, um, a Promise Neighborhood Initiative that is strength space and community led which for them literally means that Four years ago, they talked to 4,000 residents in the Pico Aliso neighborhood of Boyle Heights, which is its own neighborhood, and said, what do you want to work on together? And they said, early education, immigration, and building uh, our schools to be safe and um, places where students could decide if they want a career, if they want college, or if they want both, and that they can be safe there and healthy, right? So um, I just joined that job recently, and so... In the work that I do with the staff that I support and the residents who work there as promotoras or community leaders, like we're constantly, I'm constantly being mindful of all of the different strengths and power in the room and like not being the uh, entitled asshole from back in the day who got all A's and was like, I'm smarter than everyone. And because that really served me, right? I was like, yes, stickers, yes, <laughs> recognition. Um, because I've been able to study at the university with Fred and be like, oh, right, so there's so much more than that. And the imagination of people who don't have resources are the ones that give us our art and culture and our dancing and our food and all these other things. And so this is and trying to be conscious of the equalizing power in a room and knowledge. And so just kind of that's kind of like a practice that I have in a room now at work and then in the world. Um, and then when I teach, I try and um, the, the pedagogy, the approach is that too. It's like 
everyone has something to say. Everyone in here is valuable. So let's say what we need to to continue. I'm thinking about um, a quote by Huey, Huey Newton when he says, you know, all I really wanted to do was sit around and write poetry, write and read poetry, right? But then the conditions of his life and the conditions of his brothers and sisters compelled him right, to, to join the Black Panthers and to, to work in that way, right? And so I often think about that because at the end of the day, you know, ultimately, what, what do we really want, right? And how do we dream, you know? And so I think that's part of the conversation that you're all thinking about, too. We'll have to leave it there. You've been listening to a panel discussion entitled Art, Resistance, and Survival from the 2018 Tucson Festival of Books held at the Social and Behavioral Sciences Tent. Playwright and performance artist Virginia Vicki Grice joins poet Vicki Vertice for a discussion on resistance and survival, both on the personal day-to-day level and in a broader sense as individuals situated within systems and cultures of oppression. Moderated by UA Assistant Professor of Mexican-American Studies, Michelle Tejas. This session was sponsored by the UA Institute for LGBT Studies. Thank you for listening to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. You can find this and all recent episodes on the 30-minute program page on kxci.org.